You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Treviso. Tecnicamente, tecnicamente noi siamo un po' tra dei fuochi perché eh, Aperol nasce a Padova, sì. Select nasce a Venezia. Sì. Però si il giro si vede più Aperol. Sì, direi. sì, perché Aperol è diciamo, quello che è stato eh, sdoganato prima, è quello più celebre. Sì. Tutto qui dopo. We need to debrief the riders, but that's sad, you know. And obviously today you made a rookie mistake, let's say. Well, Brian, before I ask where are we, Brian, we heard there from a team manager and were threatening to pull someone's ears, as they say in Italian, give someone a bit of a tirata delle orecchie, one of his riders. Do you know who it was, Brian? The rider or the team the manager? The team manager, someone you know well. I don't think it's actually someone that I hired originally. It must be Luca Quacilena. It was of Segafredo. Actually, Luca was being a bit more diplomatic. And talking of diplomacy, well, we might need a diplomat to, to settle several issues tonight. One is what is the real spritz? We're in Treviso, a place where spritz is often drunk. And we heard also from our waiter here this evening bringing us a select spritz. Now, this is the, the mythical select spritz we've been talking about on the podcast for several years. And this is the original, really, and, and best. Uh, well, the Venetians would certainly say best. Invented in Venice, but our waiter there was talking, to this, talking about the conflict between Aperol spritz invented in Padova, select spritz invented here in... Sorry, not invented here, invented in Venice. Treviso is kind of in between yeah, the stuck two. in the middle, isn't it? And, well, that's one sort of gastronomic, eno-gastronomic conflict that we're going to talk about tonight. The other one involves a dessert. Um, when I say that we're in Treviso, some people might already guess what we're talking about. Anyway, to re- resolve all of this strife, all of this conflict, including the daily strife there is between you and me, we've called on <laughs> the, the acting ambassador of the United States, uh, Thomas Smith, who is an old friend of the podcast, or an old friend in the sense that we met you, Tom, last year in Cittadella, not far from here, and you've dropped in on the Giro again, and it's an absolute well, delight and a privilege to have you here, and you're also enjoying, enjoying a, a lovely select. What's the verdict on that, first of all? Well, Daniel, thank you very much, and Brian, very nice to meet you. Uh, I'm a big supporter of the select because it's in between the Aperol and the Campari in the bitter-sweet uh, spectrum. So I'm a big supporter and often wind up with a select when I'm in Treviso or Vicenza, this area. So It's also, chaps, bright red. It's the color of Campari, That's and that could bring us to another spritz that's drunk in Milan, but... I've, got an, I've had an idea, and well, this might be completely misguided, it's probably misguided, um, to start importing Select to the United Kingdom. Do you think that I could make my fortune by doing that? Because Aperol has really taken off in the United Kingdom. But I think that's an excellent idea. because it, it, Apart from the fact s- I don't live in the United Kingdom. There is that, there is that. <laughs> but I think because of everything is about origin, you know, originality, like something being original, something, you know, the sen- a sense of place... 
which I think especially in Italy but also elsewhere I think that's really what Italy imports or exports it's the sense of something being from a specific place and so I think you you know you could make millions here Daniel about five minutes have gone already in the podcast three minutes six seconds and we haven't mentioned cycling yet chaps we're going to have to get onto that in a minute but Brian first I would like you to describe in forensic detail the scene where we are so we're in Piazza Ancelotto in it's, you can't really say that Treviso is underestimated but it's every time I come here I, I realize what a lovely place it is and this place that we should really visit more often even if there wasn't a, a bike race on there's such a nice atmosphere here, friendly people, quite relaxed for nor- northern Italy. I like the accent. Uh, it's one of the accents that you do best. I heard a lot of... Today we were talking about um, the, the mannerism, the sort of affectation, I sh- I, you could say, that some people have of saying listen always in conversation. Look, look, yeah. look. Yeah. We always make... Um, we always laugh at... I mean, very good-naturedly, Matt White, who always, and Australians in general, who always say look at the start of every sentence. Today I just kept hearing, warna, warna, warna which is sort of a Venetian dialect for, for look. And I, I would probably slightly prefer the, that dialect to the one, if now that we're talking about the great divide between types of Aperol, I'd probably prefer that to the, the Padovan uh, accent. Brian, we're starting to talk about cycling with Tom first, because he was our on-course reporter, as well as being our diplomat, our ambassador in residence for this evening's podcast. We sent him out on the course today, in a car ahead of the race and well, we expected a full debriefing again a very forensic um, that, well, we've been synthesis kind of, of what happened we've, we've been, been a bit nervous about the tail well, of the tapper st- we've been struggling with left. the tail of the tapper so we've enlisted you Tom what can you tell us about your day um, with your wife out there ahead of the race I was hoping that you guys would do the tail of the tapper and then I could just come in with a couple of comments uh, here's what happened today four riders got away and they stayed away, and one of them won, and then the bunch was split behind and came in in pieces. There you go. There's, there's my tale of the tapper for you today. A fantastic non-political tale of the tapper. But how, more generally, before we do get to the official tale of the tapper, which tonight has been palmed off, delegated to Lionel, who's back in Not Watford, um, how was your day generally on the roads of, the, of Valdobbiadine and Prosecco and, um, and the Veneto? So this is the second time that I've gone within the race. Last time I went to on a mountain stage. What was beautiful about this is you're going through the wine region of Italy or, you know, the Prosecco region. Brian can correct me on all the uh, wine references I'm about to make. Uh, but it was, um, it was a beautiful stage. It was surprisingly interesting because there were these little hills that uh, were full of people uh, along the course. And so... Although it was flat and even sort of slightly downhill all the way, there were three, these three points where it was like really interesting to see, well, the race, but also the people along the side of the road. So atmospherically great, also weather's perfect, and you know, nice to see a, a, a flat stage. And also, frankly, for the competition side of me, it's nice to see the, the breakaway staying away uh, for the whole day. So it was pretty exciting for, from that perspective. Well, we heard about a rookie mistake in the intro to tonight's episode from Luca Guarcilena. He wasn't the one who made the rookie mistake, but he was referring to one. It wasn't the rookie mistake that some would argue the peloton made of letting the break go away. Um, it was another one, but we'll hear more about that, that later. As I said, we have enlisted Lionel tonight. It's been a busy few days, hasn't it? 
Brian, we're getting to the end of the Giro, and I think, um, well, Lionel was was keen to was keen to get involved again. So we're going to go almost live to Not Watford for the tail of the tapper. Well, 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 here I am back on tail of the tapper duty, and the Giro d'Italia is beautifully poised, isn't it? Two big mountain stages in the final time trial to go, and Richard Calapaz and Jai Hindley are still separated by just those three seconds. But I'm sure everyone in Australia and Jai Hindley fans everywhere, for that matter, must have had their hearts in their mouths during the run-in when they saw their man off the back of the peloton and wondered what on earth was going on. Fortunately for the Bora Hansgrohe rider, it was a puncture inside the final three kilometres. And so even though he finished behind the Calapaz group, he was given the same time and doesn't lose ground overall. The same can't be said for Joao Almeida because his Giro was curtailed this morning. The Portuguese rider was lying fourth overall, but tested positive for COVID and had to pull out of the race. The stage itself was a curious affair. 156 kilometres to Treviso. We've had the food stage. We've had the wine stage. This was the tiramisu stage. There was a four-man breakaway that was never given much breathing space, and yet the peloton failed to reel them in before the line. On the face of it, it looked to be the classic doomed break. Dries de Bont of Alpacin Phoenix, Davide Gaburo of Bardiani, Magnus Court of EF Education Easy Post, and Eduardo Affini of Jumbo Visma. The lead didn't even reach three minutes. And with Quickstep and Groupama riding on the front, a sprint finish seemed inevitable. But as they came into the final couple of kilometres, it began to look like they were going to stay away from the peloton. Magnus Court went to the front right before the start of the sprint. And then it was De Bont versus Affini. And the Belgian Alpacin Fenix rider got it on the line. Their third stage winner of this race after Matthew van der Poel and Stefano Oldani, of course. The other Oldani, Arno Damar, is well, well clear in the points competition and just has to survive the mountains to win the Ciclamino jersey now. Easier said than done, given the profile of the next two stages. Likewise, Kuhn Baumann is well clear in the King of the Mountains competition. But there's a new best young rider after Almeida's withdrawal. Juan Pedro Lopez, who led the race overall for so long, of course, will be in the white jersey tomorrow. So here we go then, three seconds, barely time to blink, two uphill finishes to come, and the questions are, can Hindley gain the time he needs? Will Carapaz stretch clear, or will it all go down to the final time trial on Sunday? As you know, I don't do speculation, so we'll just have to see what happens. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. Thank you very much to Supersapiens, our title sponsors. And since I've got home, I've been back on my bike and I've been wearing the Super Sapiens sensor to go through another period of learning about how my blood glucose levels change, uh, particularly now that I'm doing a bit more exercise. So I'm monitoring what a bike ride does to my blood glucose levels, how my blood glucose responds after um, exercise, before and after I eat, and I'm just gathering data really. And I'm going to hand that data over to Christina Scrutcher of the University of Verona to see what I can learn about my energy levels and whether there's anything I can do when it comes to my fueling that might nudge my performance up a level or two. 
If you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Now back to Daniel and Brian in Italy. Well, Brian, Lionel did extremely well to identify the winner of the stage. Dries de Bont, very popular winner, 30-year-old from Bornem, the Antwerp province of Belgium. Very popular because, well, it hasn't really escaped anyone's attention here at the Giro that he's one of the most available, affable, um, sort of keen to sign autographs. Big potential candidate for the Pedalo de Cham. He is, and he's also quite a distinctive rider on the bike. He, he's quite stylish, isn't he? He wears these long white socks, um, much like Mathieu van der Poel, his teammate. And he, he's very expressive as well. In this age, we've talked before about, you know, in the age of compulsory helmets, which is obviously a necessary and, and good thing, but it's sometimes harder to get a sense of someone's personality when they're on the bike. Dries de Bont is someone who... Um, who, who gives you a sort of vis- quite a visceral sense of, of who he is and and what he's about as a bike rider, and that's what we, that's what we want out of the sport. You know, it's not. I think cycling fans are often drawn into it because of big personalities, and unlike soccer, for instance, where they support a team through the ups and downs, and unless they have like Velcro on their on their membership card, as you might have for Arsenal that they identify with riders, not teams. And he's someone that I think would draw a lot of people into cycling because he's a very likable person. It was really interesting what he said about the breakaway itself um, in his press conference this evening. I mean, obviously, it was this well, this strange scenario whereby I suppose everyone had today marked down as a, as a sprint. Inevitably, um, the team, the sprint teams, Cavendish's team, DeMar's team were going to control things and well, we expected the break to be real back in but then when you see guys like Eduardo Raffini who's a guy who's not won very much but he's a big ruler and I think everyone in the peloton knows that as soon as a guy like that is in the break there's danger so alarm bells will start ringing there, they'll start ringing a little bit louder when they see Magnus Court in there, De Bont as well and then Gaburo um, who was, was strong on the stage to Naples so already that was a slight change from some of the breakaways we've seen earlier in the race and then the fact that we're in the third week and resources are dwindling in the sprint teams and just generally everyone's getting a little bit more tired and maybe a little bit less motivated in some cases and history really says that the last sprinter stage now that the Giro finishes with the time trial there is history really dictates that the breakaway stays away so they, th- there was a sense of, I think they underestimated once again that the, those riders seeking out their breakaway do it because they know it's possible. Yeah, and the, the break, well, the gap did come back, come down, and they were almost within touching distance. They were almost within a, a minute. It looked as though that would happen, this classic scenario of the, the break being reeled in. But in fact, then it started to go out again. And it was difficult to know what had happened at that point, whether it was the guys in front who had suddenly stepped on the accelerator or the the peloton who had maybe become a little complacent. And this is where I come to De, De Bont's comments in the press conference this evening. He talked about breakaways and the art of getting into breakaways and winning from breakaways being like a game of poker, a, a bluff game. He said, you have to make them believe they have it under control. Um, at the same time, the peloton tries to make the brake believe that the brake has it under control when actually that's not the case. And it's rare that, that 
we get a scenario like we did today, but it does sometimes happen, and often it's due to factors beyond the control of the riders in front. The other thing today that, that complicated matters for the breakaway was this, this climb, the Muro del Cadel Poggio, which caused an acceleration in the main bunch when they were on their way into the climb, but then after that, inevitably, there was a little bit of a sort of consolidation, a, a little bit of a, a slowing down maybe. Yeah, the breakaway negotiated it at a at, at a steady pace, but there was positioning in the main group because all the all the GC guys they need to be at the front. They they're all in a toll. They they use resources to get up there, and once they're passed, they let up a little bit. And that that could easily have been the five ten seconds that meant that the breakaway was successful. I said it would be a very popular victory. Debon would be a very popular winner today. Um, he was in exuberant form in his press conference, as he always is in interviews. He's one of the riders who tends to linger longest after stage finishes, giving interviews. Um, he said that throughout his career, he's been inspired by a quote he once saw from another Belgian rider, Oliver Narsen. Um, he said, you, Narsen had once said, you have to fight with your heroes until they become rivals. And he said that this has sort of provided motivation, inspiration throughout his career. And indeed, Narsen is now one of his rivals. He's a huge Tom Boonen fan as well. He's from very close to where Tom Boonen grew up and grew up and and raced. And uh, of course, now he is well. He's in this Alpecin Phoenix team, which is really developing, growing, getting stronger with every race it seems and he's never going to be a prolific winner with the characteristics that he has but he, he has this role of being able to get in breakaways trying to win stages in the fashion that he won today but then he's also a valuable domestique for like the likes of Mathieu van der Poel and Tim Melia. It would have been a historic win if, if Danish Magnus Kort had, had pulled it off which he was pretty far from, from doing because he would have been only the second Danish rider to have won a stage in all of the three Grand Tours. And it's almost 30 years. 30 years have passed since that happened the last time, well, 29. And what rider would that be, Daniel, that some 30 years ago finished that coup of winning a stage in each Grand Tour? Uh, Rolf Sorensen? Nope. Well, it wasn't Brian Nygaard, I don't know that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, Bjarneris? No, I doubt it. Yes, Skibi. Yes, Skibi, really? Wow, wow. He stuffed up the sprint, though, didn't he? Yeah, he, he did. He stuffed it up in the sense that my impression was that they were preoccupied with the peloton coming from behind. Um, the peloton got within, well, with a kilometre to go, it was about 15 seconds, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then it the court went to the front early. I think with we, you and I talked about that before we started doing the podcast here tonight, that he... He pushed a little bit to make sure that they had that gap and then he wanted to establish his sprint on top of that. And I think he tried to do too much. And as you said also initially, he was one of the big engines in the breakaway. The rider who was just edged out of the finish line was the Italian Eduardo Affini and I spoke to him shortly after the finish today. Eduardo, if we, if we looked at your power file for today, would it be pretty constant? Because the gap went up and down and up and down. Yeah, the, the first part, I would say, really high power to make the break, uh, to, get the, to get the gap. And then, uh, yeah, we, we, together we decided to take it easily and gamble a little bit with the bands to see what they were going to do. And, uh, uh, yeah... Uh, just before the Wefontolo climb, we decided to, to speed up and uh, try to gain time 
Um, actually, the, walk, the, the plan worked out uh, pretty well. Uh, and then uh, we went always uh, all together uh, with a good, uh, uh, yeah, uh, working together with the same goal, try to win the stage. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I found uh, I found uh, Dries uh, faster than me. But yeah, chapeau to him. When you saw Magnus Court leading out the sprint with 500 or so to go, did you think that's perfect? Because at least I can come off his wheel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said before, I'm not really uh, fast. Uh, especially, I'm not really uh, explosive uh, in taking up speed. So I need uh, a long sprint and. Uh, yeah, it was perfect to have uh, coordination in front of me and uh, trying to get a bit of slipstream and then uh, uh, yeah, just follow my instinct and I, I decided to go at one point and uh, yeah, uh, it, I think it was uh, alpha wheel faster. Which was the last sprint you did? Bravo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think in Norway, maybe the one I won in Norway. Uh, in 2019, so yeah, it's been, uh, been a long time uh, apart from training, yeah. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you about our collaboration with Matt. Much more about this to come in the next few weeks, and especially during the Tour de France, but you don't have to be a genius to work out that our collaboration will include an item or two of clothing and perhaps some other accessories too. Looking forward to unveiling that during the Tour de France. In the meantime, we've been finding out about MAP, the company, and recently we spoke to one of the founders, Jared Smith. Now, the word MAP, M-A-A-P, in capital letters, gives the impression that it's an acronym. So what does it stand for? How did the founders, Jared and Ollie, come up with the name? What does it mean? This is Jared Smith to explain all. I remember back in the early days, Ollie and I were bouncing names back and forth and we both wanted something quite short and punchy so it could be part of the graphic element of the brand. And it actually was M-A-double-P. And because I'd I'd seen it on a, actually just seen it written on a box at work and it, it was an abbreviation. And once we both liked the word, I was like, oh, well, it could mean Melbourne Apparel. We're from Melbourne and it's a great design scene. But it was mainly just we loved the, the, the look of the word. And as it turned out, we couldn't use that word because it was, it was unavailable. So we swapped out the, the P for an A and then it, we were just sold on it. It kind of looked like a couple of mountains, the double A. So it is pronounced MAP. For everyone that's wondering, <laughs> we quite often get asked that question. And now, we, now we've referred to it as merging aesthetics and performance. But it has derived from Melbourne and we're very passionate about where we come from and proud to be Melbourne, proud to be Australian. And that's, um, that's where it actually started. MAP have just released their Axis range. It's really, really striking. Have a look at map.cc and you'll know what I'm talking about. And, well, that might offer a little hint as to what's to come in the collaboration with the Cycling Podcast. Well, Brian, an interesting day at the, at the front of the race, as has been the case often at this Giro d'Italia. But today, it was also pretty interesting behind in a way that we didn't really expect because there was a, sh- a small climb on the route, a famous cr- climb and an illustrious climb, in certainly in the Veneto, the Muro del Poggio, twinned with the Muro van Herardsbergen 
in Belgium, twinned with Mou de Bretagne in Brittany as well, as of 2018, I think. But it caused some damage. Um, it caused some damage in the white jersey competition and in the race, I suppose, for the top 10, because Juanpe Lopez lost a significant amount of time. Brian, he came in in 72nd place, two minutes and 57 down on the stage winner after a pretty frantic, frenetic pursuit by his Trek Segafredo team and a futile pursuit in the sense that, well, they certainly didn't get back to the peloton. Well, I remember you said to me this morning when we got in the car, today's an easy day, so don't let your guard down because that's really when shit happens. And you could definitely say that that was the case for Trek Segafredo. It was a really bad day for them. It's been a good Giro, you know, winning stages and and having had the jersey for so long. But it, it, they, and I'm sure they would agree, they let themselves down today. And uh, I think we, it was referred to as a rookie mistake. It was by Luca Guercilena. Um, you know, there's a film that's been made about the Muro del Ca, uh, di Cadel Poggio by the director for many, many years of Rise Cycling Coverage. Do you know what the title of the film is it's about well, it's about life in general in that part of the Veneto and the title of the film is I don't know how it happened but it happened <laughs> and yeah. that pretty much sums up Luca Guercilena's thoughts after the finish here he is well Luca a difficult day for you guys and well problems we didn't expect we didn't expect GC riders to be out the back on the Muro del Cadel Poggio did it surprise you or were you prepared were you guys prepared for it Oh, well, in the meeting this morning, we said exactly to be very attentive on the plateau and suddenly on the, on the downhill. But, uh, you know, we are in the third week with a young guy that has not a lot of experience. And despite having the team around him, he was not really able to hold on the position. And when the split up happened, uh, then obviously we have to chase. And, you know, when you have six teams pulling in front for the sprint, it's not easy to, to do lo- don't lose ground. But so far we have done a great zero, so we need to accept that today was not our day. And are you more upset, Luca, about the situation on the white jersey or are you looking more at general classification and the final position there? Well, we need to check. I think for white jersey, we are okay. You're still five minutes and ahead. I, I don't think even for GC, that's a big deal. But clearly, when you set up a strategy, you want that the strategy happen. And if it's not happening because you're not well positioned, then, uh, then that is what's annoying us. Uh, and we'll be very clear with the riders when you say be attentive, be in the right position, in your eyes, in your thoughts, what, do, what does that mean? Does it mean top 40, top 20? I mean, when you see that there's six teams pulling, obviously we are not in contention for the sprint, but it means that you need to be at least in the first 60 riders, right? Uh, because uh, that's where you need to be. And uh, we need to debrief the riders, but that's sad. You know. One pave did already a great Giro, and obviously today... He made a rookie mistake, let's say. Well, Brian, I witnessed quite some consternation. I mean, we've got Tom here, his, who is a practice diplomat, the ambassador, the, the acting ambassador um, for the United States to Italy. Uh, I think Luca has been pretty diplomatic with me there because I think they were pretty angry tonight with precisely well, what he alluded to there. Um, the positioning was the issue. You know, it wasn't good enough to be in 50th place or 60th place. They had to had to be right in the arrowhead of the peloton. Now, this got me thinking, Brian. You have a, a long and, um, you know, I suppose, quite successful um, history and um, working for teams. Thank you, Daniel. Various, no, teams, various teams in various roles. I wondered whether you had ever come across, worked with, witnessed 
team managers who had quite an authoritarian approach and in, in a scenario like this would have, as we said in the opening to this episode, pulled a few riders' ears tonight. Well, I can't remember having witnessed, thank God, physical violence, but frust- frustration there. That's not what I was saying. Well, you know. I have, have voices. Do voices get raised on a regular basis? Of course basis? they do. Of course, they, and I think they should also. You know, you have bike riders who struggle to, you know, sometimes interpret situations. They it's the last week of a Grand Tour, and as you said this morning, you you shouldn't put your guard down. But sometimes mistakes are being made, and often it's it's the riders who who raise their voice, especially after a stage. You know, at, at this point in the race, and it can be you know, approached in in different ways. Sometimes. They kind of need to let off steam, throw some things around. Hopefully, not too often the bike. It would be, it could be a helmet, it could be something else, and and that sometimes helps. Uh, I've seen those situations being interpreted differently from different types of management, uh, but sometimes it's also important that the management let the riders know, and I'm sure they do that some like a situation wasn't done well enough. How can that happen? What happened today? We know and we've lamented the fact, mainly for selfish reasons, because it leaves us waiting to do interviews for longer, but we've, we've talked about the fact for several years that the briefings now in the team buses before stages so are minute. long yeah. and are forensic and are fastidious and they watch videos, they go on Google Earth, and there was only one real critical point on today's stage. So that message would have been communicated, it would have been re-emphasized, and yet it still wasn't, I suppose, respected, heeded by yeah. Juan Pedro Lopez. How does that happen? Well, first of all, I agree that, it, that it's not complex. You know, there's, not, there's no riddle to figuring out what to do at a certain given point of a bike race. But this is the Giro, and it's been a hard Giro. It's been a warm Giro. The riders are tired. And sometimes it, 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 there's a domino effect if one bad judgment has been made or one bad call, and all of a sudden you miss a wheel. And it's, it, there's a reason why they keep, in, in a very repetitive way, saying... This is the third week. It might look like an easy stage. This is exactly now that you really need to be careful. Because if you make mistakes on a fast stage like today, especially with the chasing that was going on, you will end up losing more time than you would on a, on a, on a very, very difficult climb, as we saw today with Lopez. So the frustration is, is justified, and it just takes so little. You know, when, when, when it's racing is on like this in this type of stage... You make one mistake and, and before you basically look over your shoulder, you're, you're in a position where you really can't claw your way back. And 150, 160 riders, I'm not sure how many are still in the race, but they also all get the same message and the same briefing, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's what we often, there's a reason why sometimes you see GC guys get caught out in a crosswind. They know there's a crosswind. They know, you know, they have all the, you know, the recon has been done. There's people in front of the race telling them exactly where it is. But there's a reason why it still happens. It's because some riders are also better at maneuvering in the, in the peloton. And they, they, they know exactly that they need to be alert on stages like this. Brian, it wasn't the only change on general classification because this morning, Joao Almeida dropped out of the Giro d'Italia. He was in fourth place overall. And, well, he had tested positive for covid I spoke to his director sportive Fabio Maldato this morning in Borgo Valsugana. Well, Fabio, some really bad news for your team this morning. Um, just tell us when you found out and how you found out that Joao had tested positive. I found out uh, when the doctor sent a message in our chat to, to pass to his room. And then uh, we, we did everybody, everyone, uh, starting from staff and riders, uh, a swab test. Uh, a rapid one to, to be sure, then, uh, and then I, I learn. 
We seen then uh, Joao in the night, uh, and then I learned this morning. Uh, he called the doctor. He was feeling no uh, great, uh, no super. It had be a cough, flu, and uh, in the morning the doctor decided to do a rapid test and was positive. After he did also a PCR, then uh, we was waiting for uh, the official one confirmation. And on the same time, uh, again, all the team uh, had uh, a test and uh, all the other, everyone, uh, we are negative. Do you imagine, well, it's, it's, it's easy to think that this affected him yesterday a little bit, although it wasn't a bad performance by any means yesterday. Yeah, now it's easy to say yes. Uh, we was thinking it was just a bad day. He told us uh, at the beginning of the climb, it was no great. Uh, please, guys, support me as much as you can. With machine in the car, we really we scream all uh, all the climb going up uh, with him. He, he was great uh, until the end, uh, suffering and uh, just losing uh, more second on the flat part going to the finish than on the climb. Yeah, at the, at the, at the end, it's easy to say yeah, for sure. Uh, that was also the, the reason. But that is uh, sport cycling. That is the COVID because of the last two years. Uh, Kobe is not the first time that an affect a rider and, uh, and stop her from uh, the performance. And just finally, I guess you can tell us now, what was your plan for the last four days? What did you hope that you might still be able to get from this Giro? No, he was really confident for the most uh, on his uh, endurance uh, capacity. Uh, he was uh, keeping every day, not to be the best, not to be the, the stronger one, but uh, never losing uh, too much. That is... Uh, his power that uh, we was confident on that uh, then uh, sooner or later maybe the other can have a crack can have a, a bad day uh, is uh, his power again is uh, the constance to be to be there then uh, and going for the, the tt last day brian well we heard fabio baldato there talking about how almeida's endurance is i suppose his superpower and they still had High hopes for him possibly improving his position between now and Verona. Alas, that's not going to happen. No, I've been very impressed by how he's been able to negotiate the setbacks or the many times he's been dropped out of the favorites group because you need to really keep your head in, in the game when you see those guys drifting away whilst you're still entertaining hopes to be in the podium. And I think he's been really good at that. But at the same time, it has to be said that he wasn't one of the best riders in this race and he was starting to look less and less of a threat either for, for reasons that had to do with his shape or as we know now that he was you know probably at the verge of being being sick with the with the covid virus we also know now that as well as being the acting american ambassador to italy tom smitham is the president of the Jao almeida fan club um, as he's just revealed off mic so not officially uh, but First of all, I'm very sad to hear of anybody who has to leave the race because of health reasons and, you know, it's a reminder that COVID is still with us. But I was impressed with the way he's hung on in the last few days where even when he was dropped, he made his way back and he kept the gaps, you know, to under a minute. So, you know, fourth position, he's still competitive. And I think that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen over the next three days, but, but he was obviously in the top five, and you know that's a competitive place to be in this Giro. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science.
Thank you to Science and Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. Now, tomorrow is stage 19 of the Giro, and that brings to mind memories of the 2018 race when on stage 19, Chris Froome launched an 80-kilometre break, which contributed largely to Simon Yates cracking. Froome started the day 3 minutes 22 down on GC and eventually won the Giro d'Italia and it was a significant day in the development of science in sports beta fuel because Team Sky's riders had tested it and trialled it in warm-up races and at training camps earlier in the year but the Giro d'Italia was the first time that they had really used it in a major competition and obviously the first time they'd used it in a Grand Tour and The idea was that it would enable the riders to consume a lot more carbohydrate than they ordinarily would without having to eat a lot of solid food. So the carbohydrate intake was up and that was particularly important during the back-to-back mountain stages where James Morton, who was the nutritionist working with Science and Sport and Team Sky, estimated that the riders would burn between four and six thousand calories on each of those mountain stages and so carbohydrate would be really significant and vital source of fuel and the beta fuel enabled the riders to consume that carbohydrate in a much more efficient way now of course beta fuel is available for everyone who rides a bike and if you would like to get some you can get 25 percent off at scienceinsport.com using the discount code siscp25 well brian we've got not just one but two very important guests with us this evening at this point in the podcast because we've moved from where we're having our select spritz to a very famous destination in Treviso. We've been here before, Le Beccherie in Treviso, which claims to be the inventor of tiramisu, as explored in the cycling podcast in great detail in 2018. And we're joined by Andrea, who works here. Andrea, what has happened in the world of tiramisu in the last four years? Cos'è successo? Cioè... L'ultima volta quando siamo stati qua c'era stata la Coppa del Mondo, eh, c'era il conflitto con Tolmezzo, poi sappiamo che, che purtroppo è morto il signor Campeol, quindi facci un, un breve riassunto degli ultimi quattro anni nel mondo del tiramisù. Okay. In realtà no, nella sua consistenza non è cambiato nulla, nel senso che... Eh... So in general nothing has really changed if we look at the, the fundamental things about tiramisù? La ricetta originale è comunque stata codificata qui e nel tempo, in questi quattro anni, l'abbiamo, diciamo, un po' solidificata. So we solidified that the original recipe for tiramisu stems from here. E abbiamo però avuto la fortuna che in questi quattro anni è aumentato appunto la, la, la voglia di assaggiare la, il tiramisu e la sua ricetta originale che qui è nata. And we've Grazie in the, a noi, credo. Magari. <laughs> so we've also, Grazie anche a voi. <laughs> what Andrea is saying is that we've also noticed that in the past four years there's been a, a growing interest in coming to taste the tiramisu from where it originates. Beh, come dicevo quattro anni fa, la forza del tiramisù è che comunque è un, è un dolce eh, povero che lo si può fare in tutto il mondo e la sua forza è questa. So the strength of tiramisù is that it's a, it's, a, it's a dessert for even for poor people. Anyone, dolce del popolo. Anyone anywhere can make tiramisù. It's the dessert of the people. Mi dica una cosa, eh, la guerra con Tolmezzo è finita? <laughs> 
la guerra contro il mezzo non è mai iniziata, nel senso che eh, è stata una diatriba eh, che comunque eh, è nata per via di, di, di un nome, che era un nome dato a un dolce che era comunque differente. Eh, da, da quello che è l'originalità so del tiramisù, però giustamente glielo diamo, nel senso che è vero che avevano dato... Um, he says it, at, at the heart of it is not a real conflict because yeah, the, the, there, is, there was a dessert by the same name but the substance of the dessert served here and of which... La ricetta is, che is tutti the, conoscono è nata qui ed è stata uh, codificata. The that everyone knows comes from here the name had been used for another dessert from another place so and that's why he's saying it's not a real conflict because the substance and the real ingredients of chimisu are from right where we're sitting here we'll get back to the cycling and um, well, well we'll be tasting the tiramisu shortly grazie mille grazie mille grazie, grazie. well brian i mean we could talk for hours about tiramisu it's too we haven't got enough time to re resume to Um, some of the whole, the, the long and, and quite, quite fractious story of tiramisu, certainly when it comes to Treviso and Tolmezzo. We talked, didn't we, in, well, four years ago about how Tolmezzo had this receipt from 1953 that they were brandishing and they were very upset about the Tiramisu World Cup because they said that Treviso took a busload of fans to support them and consequently Treviso won. Brian, will this Giro d'Italia over the next few days, will it be as keenly fought as the Tiramisu World Cup? Because, well, as we said, things are pretty much unchanged in spite of the fact that Jai Hindley came in behind the main peloton today. He had a mechanical in the last three kilometers. And we've got this really mouth-watering battle, three-way battle between Landa, Hindley and Carapaz set up for the weekend. Yeah, I have nothing bad to say about how potentially fantastic this last weekend could be it people really sometimes cry that ah oh, there isn't you know the riders were missing here you know why aren't you know there's some favorites who've you know gone home because of illness or crashes but with the layout of the last part of the year and especially the big stage in the Dolomites which I'm looking forward to in a, in a very very big way I expect that to be a big race I I can't really see what the what the issue is with this race being boring because you we can we can talk about that in Verona But this, being this close at this point in the race, like find, find a f cycling fan that's not going to watch the stage on Saturday. Do you know what we should do tomorrow, Brian? We should come up with a list of sort of top 10 of the closest Grand Tours ever. There have been a lot in the last few years. Um, it was quite rare until very recently for Grand Tours to be decided by fewer than 20 seconds, but it's become more common. Brian, Jai Hindley is a really intriguing ingredient in this battle for the top three or battle for the Maglia Rosa. Of course, he came very close two years ago. And I suppose he's the surprise, although there, there was that precedent, um, partly because he's had a, a difficult 18 months or so. This morning in Borgo Valsugana, I spoke to his coach, Hendrik Werner, about how surprised, how delighted Bora Hansgrohe are with Jai Hindley and how confident they are going into this weekend. So Hendrik, this is your first year working with Jai Hindley and it's obviously going really, really well so far after a difficult year for him last year. But tell me about your first impressions of him, particularly as an athlete, but also as a, as a human being. Uh, actually, I have to say in Sunweb, I already worked with him uh, yeah, two years. and So I was not his responsible coach there, but uh, I spent IT camps and for sure I knew uh, where I'm at and uh, who, who, who I get to, uh, to work with. But uh, I think now I even realize 
bit more layers uh, of his personality here in the Giro as well. And uh, that's pretty exciting. And as an athlete, what, what do you see as his main sort of, well, superpowers? I mean, he's obviously an amazing climber and that's down to power to weight ratio, but sort of digging a little bit deeper in terms of, I don't know, whether it's lactate tolerance or what, what, what are his main strengths as an athlete, as a, sort of physiologically speaking? Yeah, I would say, like, also back in the days already, like, we, we did all the testings and critical power testings, and uh, he, he wasn't in particular the guy who always, yeah, uh, was shining there at the top, like the outstanding, let's say, three or four minutes comparison to all the others. But uh, there was such a resistance to fatigue, and I, uh, yeah, also, also when you look back in the days how he developed over the over the course of time, and um, well, how much he was even developing during that race um, that I also said like maybe if you get his number and you just purely look on oh that's a 3 minute that's a 10 minute for sure they are outstanding but they are not like oh you don't get this from anyone else but the fatigue resistance and the how much, how much and how often he can do it rep- rep- repeatedly uh, I think that's something outstanding and then if you look on how he's developing, also what we see here. Um, yeah, that's that's probably also one of the factors why we why we signed him home. Yeah, why we had so much trust in him. And on long climbs as well. I mean, Jens Zemke said to me the other day that in this week we would get slightly longer climbs. So I guess over sort of 30, 40, 50 minutes as well, um, he's pretty outstanding. Obviously, yeah. I would say like the punchy stuff. Probably you would first thought that he that he lacks a bit there, but. Also, we worked on it uh, this winter and put some intensities in there. And I think also we see it back now with the sprints. To be honest, I'm also a bit, a bit surprised. But I think it's also because he has quite something over in the tank uh, that he does sprints like he do. But uh, yeah, the, on, on longer climbs, I've no doubt he looks so stable. And also he had quite a good winter. Yes, I have to be honest. That, uh, after Liège, there was a massive setback. And uh, it was already a big success to bring him here. Uh, healthy that was yeah already halfway then because it was it was really quite some question marks behind it but uh, yeah but now I think all the question marks subsided and when he did join in the winter was there any big change that you tried to implement or was it just a question of getting back to where he had been in 2020 and and following a sim similar formula to the one he'd probably followed then yeah, I think when I had the first talks with talks with him, because I also talked to his recent uh, trainer and asked him what he learned and what probably didn't work, the biggest fuck-ups or whatever, but, but also it was quite a good uh, mix with him and his old trainer. So actually I re- reached out and... Who I, is that, Hendrik? Uh, that was Dario Sanders, and uh, yeah, he, he also valued him really much, but I, I also wanted to, to, yeah, to learn from this experience and... We also said, like, I mean, everyone has strengths and weaknesses, and you can focus on the weaknesses, but they always come also with a price. And, uh, yeah, you also you also have to be willing to, to pay this. And and I thought, like, uh, I think it's more wise to strengths and strengths than to strengths and weaknesses and pay the price. So we basically went, to, went back to his strengths and for the long climbs to also strengthen this even more and putting some sparks 
also for his yeah dynamics of sprints, but not going too crazy for 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 the weaknesses. And I think it pays out pretty well. Yeah, I guess some might say that. As, as is the case for most climbers, time trialling has been a bit of a weakness for him. Um, where are you at in terms of well, the testing he's done, the work he's done on his time trialling, and obviously how confident you are about Sunday? Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, it, it, it was especially in, in really fast time trials and connecting, let's say, the power to the kinetics. So putting power in that special position, but much more combined with high speed and uh, honestly if I also look on Sunday he did to my understanding and also from where we came from um, the, the time before already good starting time trial it was not crazy crazy but for for the circumstances and the, the context it was already promising and uh, we put quite some work in there and also tried to work on this yeah combined with the speed on Sunday, I think it's a bit, bit different kind of thing. So first of all, we have the fatigue creeping into the legs of all the contenders in his legs as well. But I think he's, he's dealing pretty well at the moment. Uh, next to that, you have pretty technical part and he's pretty good in, in cornering and uh, in, in handling his bike. But you also have a massive part in, 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 yeah, in this uphill part. And I think uh, yeah, there, this, this also plays into his favor. I have to be honest that for sure Carabas is a really good time trialist and he has a lot of experience how to do it also in a Grand Tour and uh, also if you look to Landa uh, he also did quite a good time trial so I think they I think it will be super exciting I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say this is this one is much much better than the others I think it's pretty uh, yeah pretty balanced but honestly um, yeah how, how I saw him moving on the bike his confidence and also that he that he puts some work in there and looking on the profile um, yeah I'm not afraid of that and very last thing Hendrik in your heart are you confident about the next three days but particularly the mountain stages because we've seen they're so even these guys or they seem to be but what we don't know is whether one of them has something left that they haven't quite shown and they will show over the next couple of days are you yeah. confident uh, yes, I am. But but honestly, it's not a saying. It's it's really really big. I mean, there's there's quite some ease and a yeah pretty pretty easy approach also within the team. And I think we we manage pretty well to keep this. And if we just keep on the things we're doing anyway already for two and a half weeks and just yeah staying in this routine and also seeing how he was moving on the bike I mean you can never plan how the next day is planned out but the attention the intention is clear the confidence is there and all the rest that's also not up to us so our attitude I think our attitude is that's clear and uh, yeah let's see well Brian Tom I don't know about you guys but um, I thought Hendrik Werner sounded pretty confident there but Carapaz looks very confident as well doesn't he? I'm intrigued by this comment that he made yesterday that he doesn't think tomorrow with this very difficult final climb, or sorry, penultimate climb in Slovenia, he doesn't think it's going to make much difference to proceedings. But at this point, who do we think is going to win this Giro? Tom? So I'm a student of the Cycling pad Podcast enough to know that the Cycling Podcast does not make predictions. So I'm going to be neutral on that part. What I think is interesting is how close it is. And I mean, I, you know, I remember when Ryder Hedgedal won, you know, in 2012 and 
you know, even, I don't, you correct me on the year, but when Menshov, you know, uh, kind of fell down in the final time trial in probably 2009. 2009. Um, yeah, so, uh, so, so it, it makes for a very exciting race. And the fact that the top two are separated by three seconds and anything could happen to those two. And then you've got, you know, you've got Landa and, um, you know, don't forget Nibali, um, uh, you know, five minutes down uh, behind. So I'm, I'm going to let you guys make the predictions and I'm going to stay neutral. Well, the Dolomites are approaching. Tomorrow we're not in the Dolomites, but we certainly will be on Saturday. And that is the stage that I think everyone agrees well, is, the, is the one that is most eagerly anticipated, both for the, the setting, the grandiose mountain setting that we'll have that day, and also for what's still to be decided in terms of the race. Now, the Dolomites were somewhere that our beloved friend Richard Moore loved to visit every year. It was generally Richard who did the northern swing of the Giro with me, so we um, did the Dolomite stages together on numerous occasions. I was going to save this clip for tomorrow when we will be just on the, well, on the eve of the big Dolomite stage, but sort of in honour of the fact that Richard didn't have much time for us talking about Tiramisu in 2018 and wanted to sort of move hastily on to other things more related to the race. Tonight's Giro del Buffalo is going to be the Buffalo in the Grand Tour Diaries or for the Grand Tour Diaries that we published as a book in 2018 and later as an audio book talking about the Dolomites. Il Giro del Buffalo Remembering Richard Moore. Thursday, the 25th of May, stage 18, Moena de Ortizai Santulrush, 137 kilometres. Stage winner, TJ Van Garderen. Pink jersey, Tom de Moulin. Hands down, this is the most beautiful stage I've ever driven in a Grand Tour. We set off through Kanetzai, where yesterday's stage finished, and then begin at a point I can't really determine to climb the Pordoi Pass, winding up through the trees, emerging on a plateau and stopping at a restaurant that stands there all alone. It's magical, the light, the colours, the sense of being somewhere other. The Alps might be like this if there were no people and it wasn't so overdeveloped, but it still wouldn't be as lovely on the eye, and it's difficult to imagine the air being as pure. I was first over the summit there five times, said Fausto Coppi of the Pordoi Pass, maybe because whenever I was in that area, I could breathe beautifully. The road itself, transporting us through pine forest to this point, is sheer pleasure, 27 hairpins over 11.8 kilometres to an elevation of 2,239 metres. It's not ridiculously steep at most 8%, making it enjoyable to drive and I can sort of easily imagine cycle. At the restaurant, there's one other vehicle in the car park, the gleaming white Skoda of L'Equipe with that familiar logo, tall, red, gently slanting capital letters emblazoned on the side. It is, as Daniel notes, one of the great brands. But something else struck me as we approached the car park and spotted the Lequipe car sitting there all alone. The timelessness of this image. I could imagine the Lequipe car stopped here during a 1960s Giro. It's journalists and their driver inside the cafe, sipping their coffee and smoking their galois. That's something else that hasn't changed about Lequipe. They still have a driver to ferry the writers and keep the car looking immaculate. The journalists here are Gilles Simon, the cycling editor, and Philippe Brunel with his shoulder-length black hair, who wears the same outfit every day, skinny black jeans and tight black t-shirt, sometimes with a black pullover slung around his neck, as is compulsory for Frenchmen of a certain age. 
He is 61, but could be in his mid-40s. He's been writing about cycling for 38 years. Today, the three of them sit at an outside table with their driver, drinking coffee, not smoking, but doing something almost as bad for a Frenchman's health, discussing the prospects of Thibaut Pinot. Well, it brings back memories uh, hearing Richard's voice. I remember distinctly meeting him and, and you last year. And it's one of these strange things where if you see social media and you've heard about Richard, it's amazing the effect he's had on people, even on those he's met in a short time. And that was the way it was for me and my wife uh, after just meeting him. And we're all very, very sorry um, that he's passed and wanted to extend our best wishes to him, to his family, um, for his passing. Thank you, Tom. Well, chaps, Richard would not approve of us spending more time talking about tiramisu this evening, but I'm afraid our tiramisu has arrived. It's a very unusual time of day to eat tiramisu, certainly as, our, as far as I'm concerned. Never mind 11 o'clock cappuccinos, it's 8 o'clock and we're about to tuck in. Brian, first impressions, Tom, first impressions? Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit like MasterChef, only we know who actually won, because this is... These are the champions, the creators and the champions of Tiramisu. Extraordinary stuff, extraordinary stuff. I think in honor of Richard Moore, I'm going to declare it nice. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. That's a very convenient last word. But Tom, I will just ask you, you've spent um, quite a significant amount of time in Italy now. And this, this whole polemica about the Tiramisu is very reflective. It's very sort of symptomatic of a lot of things in Italian life. And a lot of things we love about the Italians, isn't it? Well, I follow that mostly on the politics side, and that's what makes politics here interesting because there's a dispute every day, and, you know, hopefully Italians work through their disputes through the political process, but it makes it interesting for an outside observer to to see. And, yes, you see this reflected also in the food and in the soccer teams, sorry, the football teams. Well, it's been a privilege to have you with us, Tom, and... I suggest we go out this evening, we sign out with a toast to the Campeol family, Aldo and Alba, who sadly passed away a few months ago, and to our great friend Richard Moore. Salute. Grazie. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne. talk about medi-cal you have a choice and molina makes it easy so let's talk about making your life easier about extra help to manage your health nobody knows medi-cal better than molina visit meetmolinaca.com let's talk today